Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello, everyone. Today, we are meeting Vladimir Nikoluk. He's the CEO and the founder of Atlas Metrics. Vladimir was born in the Ukraine and uh, grew up in Germany. He spent some time in India as a teacher, and he worked for the United Nations during the time of the Syria crisis. He studied uh, philosophy and politics and economics at the university in Oxford. He worked for McKinsey, and he then founded Atlas Metrics. His view is that data is something that needs to be shared. His dream is that data is freely available for everybody. And with his company, he wants to support that. But now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Vladimir. Hi, Vladimir. It's a great pleasure to have you um, with our podcast, Important Problems. Um, could you please introduce yourself to uh, to our audience? Yeah, um, thank you, Andy, for having me. It's a pleasure pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name is Vladimir Nikoluk. I'm the CEO and founder of Atlas Metrics. Um, my background is at this intersection of environmental and social metrics, data, data science, um, and impact. And I was born in the Ukraine mm -hmm. um, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and moved to Germany when I was around four years old mm. and grew up here mostly in Frankfurt. And after high school, yeah, I took the liberty to live in and work in different places. Um, my first job was in India. I was a teacher of English and music for kids from difficult social backgrounds. Um, my second job was working for a startup in Switzerland. And then afterwards, I decided to pursue a philosophy, politics and economics undergraduate at Oxford in, in, in the UK. Um, yeah, learned a lot about uh, different concepts, uh, really shaped my worldview, um, still still does today. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, um, my first kind of, I guess, proper job full-time was then working for the United Nations on the Syria crisis. Oh, what did you do there? I was part of a team that was trying to figure out how do you allocate a very large budget, two and a half billion dollars each year. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, across the countries surrounding Syria. So Syria uh, itself got a lot of financial support, okay. but the countries surrounding Syria were hosting like hundreds of thousands of refugees okay. and needed support. And so our team was there to try to figure out, okay, well, if you, how do you allocate this money? And if you spend, for example, 400 million on education, how do social and environmental indicators change as a result? Um, and I thought it was a really interesting kind of challenge. It was not well well solved, I think. Um, but something that stuck with me for a long time because I realized... Uh, how long did you stay there? I was there for over a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how did you kind of decide to go to Syria? Is that, you know, that's probably not on the the bucket list of everyone, um, especially during during these times. So, so how did that happen? Yeah, so I was... Um, well, the job was supposed to be originally in New York, <laughs> which was which was a little bit in the other direction. Um, and then I think by the time I graduated, um, I got a call from the UN and said, hey, you know, like the job we offered you um, 
uh, you can still go to New York, but but we really need more people to work on the Syria crisis. And so they offered me a reallocation, not to Syria itself, but to Amman in Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's where a lot of this regional coordination was taking place at that time. And so I was like, hell yes, yeah, why not? Because I, I felt like you can have a much greater impact, especially as a younger professional in that type of context, rather than in being this part of this bigger bureaucracy that you'll likely find in New York. Oh, wow. And then you also said you're coming from the Ukraine. Um, does that have any influence um, on on kind of how you think or feel, or is that just you know, okay, well I'm from the Ukraine, um, but um, everything is normal. Uh, I don't know if that is a bad question, but uh, <laughs> I think you know where I'm getting at. You know. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean I think it profoundly shaped shaped my worldview uh, in a sense. I was born at a time when a specific you know political structure was collapsing, but with it also uh, an economic structure um, like a centrally planned economy. And so I think it was interesting growing up between, in a way, Germany and Ukraine. Uh, in the years uh, afterwards, um, every summer we would go and visit my grandmother. I would have friends there and play around um, uh, with them. And I think it was clear that there was a there was a significant difference, right, in the way people were living and the opportunities they were they were given as well. Um, and I think that did prompt quite a bit of thinking and also, in a way, an academic passion to understand what makes some systems more successful than than others. Are there any like two or three things that you learned from that? Uh, you know, as a summary, I mean, this is a detour to what we what we wanted to discuss, but but that's probably quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, the Ukraine was influenced by, I guess, a centrally planned economic system where that functioned quite differently from our market-based economic systems, right? Um, so in that system a bunch of people would get together in a room, try to do like a five to 20 year plan and they would have all the information in the world and they would try to allocate resources as best as they could. Um, and I think in our system, it's a decentralized information processing world. We have hundreds of millions of small consumption and production decisions mm. that equilibrates prices, right? And um, that I think has led to, yeah, a lot of, Growth, you know, and a lot of uh, uh, wealth and and um, and in a way, material safety created for for people. It in turn has created other problems, mm-hmm. but I think that it gave me an appreciation for what goes well in our economic system, and also maybe the desire to upgrade it rather than completely tear it out and mm. just replace it with something else. Got it. Well, that's quite interesting. So you spend a lot of time in Syria. Um, uh, you also said you worked in India. Um, so how kind of that does that happen? You like India, Syria, and, and, you know, also the stuff that you've done was quite different there. You know, one, you know, giving, giving musical um, uh, uh, lessons to, to disadvantaged uh, children, and then there you go into refugees. So, so how is that kind of, you know, um, how does that work? Yeah. I think I'm naturally quite a, Like, I think I'm aware on one hand that I'm quite curious. So I think it's just important to experience, um, yeah, different things during my life. I think for me, that's one. The other thing is, I think I realize I'm quite fortunate. I'm very lucky. If my parents hadn't moved from the Ukraine to Germany, I think I would have way less opportunities. So I think it came quite natural to think a little bit about how you give back if you are lucky, because by definition, you didn't really do anything to, to deserve it. Um... And 
I think the other thing is I'm conscious of my own mortality. Mm. I think there's only a short period of time that we have. We'll not experience everything. So I think living your life in a way that satisfies your curiosity, allows you to live in alignment with your values, um, has led to a lot of different decisions that might not seem very linear uh, if you look back at it. Mm. I think going to India after high school was just one of those decisions where it felt right. It was a chance to give back. It was a chance to see something something else. Mm. I think it was also a reality check on some of the things I thought. For example, I think I was much more bullish on free market economics before I went there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I believed in a lot of those th- theories where the free market would so reward. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very close to this ideal of meritocracy. Mm. You work hard. You know, you get you get rewarded for that because you contribute a lot to everyone else. Yeah. And I think if you're just sitting there in India, you know, it's very hard to go to your students and, and say, you know what, the only thing that distinguishes you from Bill Gates is just hard work, you know. Um, so I think I think this type of learnings were quite invaluable. Yeah. Mm. And then at the UN, I think I was always fascinated by the social sector because it's so... It works on some of the most interesting problems in the world, really. Like, the, you know, at the UN, you always think about how do you supply water? Mm. How do I train up people in mm. very difficult circumstances? How do I keep them safe? How do I keep them healthy? Mm. Um, and, you know, the UN assembles some of the most interesting um, and, and most powerful resources to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's also criticized widely and partially fairly. But yeah. I think it's also important to keep in mind that it, it doesn't try to build like an e-commerce store. <laughs> it really, <laughs> it really tries to do something that is incredibly hard. Uh, okay. And so I was, I was naturally drawn to to see for myself how it actually works. Oh wow! And then of all places, you work for McKinsey. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> again, another end of the spectrum. So, so how did that come about? Yeah. So, um, so after the time at the UN, it was I learned so much, and then, and then I also realized though though that there is. Um, that I wanted to see and receive like a professional training. And I was thinking about, okay, where could I, mm. what would be one of the best places to receive a professional uh, training? Because I was, I was in my mid-twenties uh, and I wanted to, yeah, um, you know, I, I do think that your personal impact is a, is a function of the skills you, you acquire also yeah. at, at certain periods of your time uh, in, in life. And um, yeah, that's when McKinsey was a, was a natural choice. Um, I moved there and I found some, super smart people. I was able to work on very interesting projects mm-hmm. and I kind of stumbled in more and more in this area of data science, data engineering, mm-hmm. advanced analytics. Mm-hmm. I think what I took away from it wasn't quite what <laughs> I think McKinsey might have loved to use data science for like say churn prevention and, and customers. But I, mm-hmm. I, was, I was just really fascinated by this idea of whether you could use advanced analytics and and uh, machine learning and all of these advances in data science to come to grips with this problem of environmental and social measurement, right? Mm-hmm. Like measuring the performance of investments, of organizations, of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was one of the greatest kind of conceptual gifts that I got from that time, except yeah. obviously the amazing people I met and the training I received. Well, that's quite interesting. And here also you have an element of, you know, measuring something, measuring something with data in the same way as you had it in, in Syria. You know, like when you said, you know, you, you wanted to measure KPIs on, on what the money that you were allocating actually was doing. Um, another thing you told me about was Imalan. Um, so what's that? 
Yeah. Um, so Immerlearn is was a a company I started next to my master's uh, studies. So um, during my time at McKinsey, I realized that I wanted to pursue this idea of applying data science to this problem of environmental and social um, <clears throat> performance measurement in a way. And I was lucky to get a scholarship to go to Harvard University for that. Um, I got the chance to study for two years at the Harvard Kennedy School and really focused there on this intersection of impact and data, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I took PhD-level econometrics classes yeah. uh, for the statistical foundations. I started coding in Python myself, uh, oh, wow. took machine learning classes, but also did impact investing, impact management. And I think it was... Um, incredible right like to to yeah to, to 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 study all of these topics and to try to apply them on the other hand to real world problems that was kind of the idea behind MLearn so MLearn was founded to um, enable access to these advanced data science methods mm -hmm. for organizations that would traditionally not have access like for example UN agencies NGOs uh, we worked with also companies to set up certain impact systems yeah. um, but the idea was okay let's use data let's use algorithms to figure out how a product a service a program mm. influences uh, certain certain groups of people and, yeah. and whether whether they are successful at really improving uh, social environmental indicators um, because I think that was the, the, I guess, downside in some of the social sector projects is that they're flying blind. They don't, don't, yeah. they don't know. Yeah. Um, and the idea was to change that. Well, that's pretty cool. And then at some point in time, that stopped, I reckon. You know, and then uh, your new venture started, which is, you know, Atlas Metric, which um, you're now running and setting up and give all your blood, sweat and passion and emotions. So, so what was kind of the last step in your life so far? Yeah, um, so... Atlas really is a culmination of a lot of different experiences. Um, so it came, it was founded pretty much after my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. I think I realized that we the, the model we built was kind of nice and was serving some organizations, um, but it was also not scalable. <clears throat> um, and I think that's the realization any consulting company at some point has, right? Uh, you only can serve as many people as you have uh, employees, yeah, as, as you yeah. have people, exactly. <clears throat> and so the idea really was to build something much more scalable okay. and um, to really support this mega trend that we have, which is ESG. Uh -huh. um, so ESG essentially stands for environmental and social and governance data. And we live through, I would say, really unparalleled efforts mm -hmm. Um to get hundreds of thousands of organizations to calculate the environmental and social metrics for the very first time in a way to do something that the social sector has been trying to do and has, has been doing for decades. Mm -hmm. And um, this is partially a function of strong regulation that is coming in, but partially also a function of consumer preferences, right? Yeah. Um, and investment preferences. Mm -hmm. And um, Atlas really is... Um, an effort to create a solution for all of these organizations that have to essentially calculate the environmental and social metrics for the first time and then really find a way to exchange that data and to yeah keep reporting it uh, with, with maximum efficiency mm -hmm. in the first step. And then in the second step, obviously, to improve their performance, right? And to be able to operate within those planetary and social boundaries. 
So, so let me just rephrase this. So, so basically, the the users of Atlas would be a corporation who wants to aggregate all of that information for themselves, and then basically use that in order to put it out and to communicate this information to some sort of recipient of that. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly right. And uh, which ones of the the ESG data have you been focusing on? You know, there's obviously a whole lot of different frameworks and everybody has their different ones and wants to erect artificial barriers of entry. And and where is your sweet spot? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the way we were trying to think about the solution from Atlas is more from the needs of the market. Like what, what, what would I as a corporation or as a fund or as a bank, what would I need mm-hmm. in order to meet... Um, or solve those those pain points as efficiently as possible. And Atlas is therefore structured as a pretty sector agnostic and um, <clears throat> like stage agnostic solution, right? So you can use it as um, a startup, you can use it as a SME, um, you can use it as a fund, as a bank, uh, as an insurance company. So we work with various organizations. Um, and the reason for that is that partially this ESG problem is um, rely, uh, resides in the fact that you're never self-sufficient mm-hmm. when it comes to this data. Okay, you always need to get data from someone else, right? And so there needs to be a solution that allows each individual organization to calculate their own part in the data, mm-hmm. right? And then there needs to be some way to uh, exchange that data. And so Atlas offers this end-to-end suite, right? Of um, calculating your social metrics, your environmental metrics, mm-hmm. uh, everything that would be required by the key regulations like the CSRD, the SFDR, the EU taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, we focus on then also calculating in-depth indicators like carbon, like carbon, for example, or running certain assessments like the EU taxonomy would ask you to do. Yeah, and so the idea is to really have this end-to-end solution and then be able to present a finalized and and also audited set of data to the world, right? To all of your stakeholders. Uh, so there would be regulators, investors, and customers. Well, it's pretty, it's a daunting task. Um, but there's many others doing similar things. So why do you think your solution or your network or what is kind of your, your secret juice? Why would anyone kind of, you know, choose you over another one? Yeah. So one thing that Atlas has that I'm not aware that any other solution has is something which we call a logic model. Mm -hmm. So it's an approach to data engineering that is quite unique. Um, Instead of just filling out a survey, you know, for a certain ESG standard like the GRI or uh, the DNK or the SFDR, and then have that answer be almost separate from all the other answers, right, to, to, um, to other standards, the way Atlas works is that you, we collect every single data point as a small data Lego brick almost, mm-hmm. right? And then these Lego bricks can be used to pre-fill and answer ESG questions, right? Mm-hmm. As more standards become uh, relevant for you. So you could be a small startup, you start with 20 indicators, right? Mm-hmm. And then you grow and you have to do another standard. And then the system takes all the data you have and tries to pre-fill in, mm. to pre-fill that, sta- that standard to, its, to the best of its ability. Wow. And that allows you to do stuff with maximum efficiency. And then I think the, the second thing is, it's really an end-to-end solution. You don't need to, usually, if you don't work with Atlas, you have to 
manage at these four or five providers mm-hmm. without any of the providers guaranteeing compliance, yeah. right? Um, which is a key pain point for you. And we do. Um, and then the other thing is obviously this network functionality. It allows you to exchange uh, data with other people. Oh, that's quite interesting. So Lego with data, um, I understood that. Um, when you say, kind of, you know, you don't have to, you just have one solution, it's an end-to-end process. Do you have to install anything within your, you know, company? Is that a, is that a software you need to kind of, you know, whatever, tuck in somewhere? Or is it something you can use as a service? Um, so it's a, it's a web-based application. Mm-hmm. So uh, you essentially buy access to it. Um, you get a login. And there you'll be able to unlock several modules depending on your needs. Mm-hmm. So partially it's about selecting which type of ESG standards, which type of ESG KPIs you would like to collect mm-hmm. on the one hand. Partially it's about modules like carbon accounting, how many of your scopes do you want to calculate, do you want to offset maybe. Uh, you can use a functionality called the microsite, which is a way to make your data public mm-hmm. without having to write a, a sustainability report. And that helps you be compliant with um, this um, requirement of the EU that data be presented in machine-readable format. Uh, and you can also invite, for example, your auditors to the platform and say, okay, well, we can, you know, let's let's verify this data, which is another requirement. Yeah, um, so, yeah, there's modular pricing and it is there is also a service element to it uh, in a sense that there will always be modules that or features that the platform can't do just yet. Mm-hmm. And so we work with um, a cohort of selected pilot customers to develop and refine solutions almost in a low-tech, mm-hmm. more hacky way. And then those solutions ultimately find their way into the platform as a module. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, so we now did kind of a little bit of a jump around, but that doesn't, that doesn't kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, pose a problem. But, um, you know, the podcast is called, in, you know, Important Problems and, and kind of, you know, then how to solve those. So, so if I can ask you about, you know, what is, you know, the important problem that you would like to solve at the moment with your life, with kind of, you know, the limited time that you spend on this, on this earth, what is the focus of yourself? Yeah, so I've been, you know, from this experience growing up between the Ukraine and Germany, I've always been, yeah, as I mentioned, interested in how do our economic systems work, right? I think what I found is evidence that our economic system is quite awesome mm-hmm. and um, evidence that our economic system is is also very challenging mm-hmm. yeah, in some respects. And I, I think if you look just at the, um, at the history of, of capitalism, right? I don't see a reason to think it's either perfect or that we should throw it out. Like I think like a lot of people, they have this view or they don't like complexity. They don't like grayness. People would prefer black and white. You know, something is either really good or really bad. But the truth is that our economic system, you know, has done a lot of good things. 200 years ago, 90% of people lived in abject poverty. Today it's below 10, you know? If you look at like uh, literacy rates, mm. mortality rates, average lifespans, it's amazing. You know, mm. anyone, anyone alive in 200 years ago, if you teleport him in our day, they would probably fall on their knees and be like, holy cow, right? Yeah. On the other hand, we have created now a system where if everyone would consume the way we do in the West, we need eight planets. <laughs> you eight know? planets? We need eight planets, you know. Oh, that's, that's um, difficult. Yeah, we live in a world where, you know, 
um, sea levels are rising, yeah. which will displace hundreds of millions of people. We live in a world where um, 40%, I think, of all arable land is degraded. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but not only environmentally, we live socially in a world where in one of the richest countries in the world, the United States, 40% of all families couldn't um, absorb an unexpected $400 expense. You know, which is insane if you think about it. Yeah. And so um, the real question is like, how do we upgrade a machinery that is quite good at optimizing for certain things to make it fit for purpose in a more crowded world and in a world where the planetary boundaries, both social and environmental, need to be met, right? They need to be respected. And... Um, Yeah, I think that's 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 the problem that um, I'm very passionate about. And how do you solve that? Is is Atlas uh, part of the solution, or is it uh, the full solution? Or what is your kind of you know view without um, you know focusing too much on on the product itself? But mm -hmm. what is you know the the why? You know, people don't buy what you do, but why you do it. So so if you can talk about your why a little bit more and and what this the how is basically how you want to solve that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I mean. It, it goes back, I think, I think Atlas is part of this, definitely not the full solution. Um, but we need, to, we need to kind of be mindful of the way our system works, right? Essentially, it's a big information processing machine, right? So um, if, you go, if you go on to the, say, abstract concept of the market, right? Mm. There's a price for goods, right? And if for some reason this price goes up, it's a signal, right, to everyone else that something is desired, so maybe there should be more produce more of it. Maybe if it drops, people should produce less of it, right? Yeah. And, and so in a way, we are in a continuous information processing flow, right? Where like hundreds of millions of people are taking individual decisions based on what market signals they receive. Mm -hmm. And everything we do in a way is a signal. If, if I buy something at a certain price, it's almost like a vote of confidence to someone in the world, mm -hmm. someplace, right? That they have done something good, yeah. that I approve of what they've done. Yeah. Um, And then if really the superiority or, or, or the, the strength of our system resides in this efficient and decentralized information processing, the question, question is like, what information are we actually processing? Mm -hmm. And so far, I don't think we're processing, we're only processing more or less financial information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think in order to upgrade the economic system, we actually have to also process environmental information and social information alongside it. Yeah. Right. Um, And I think if you had that information, it would allow a lot of people to change their consumption and investment behavior. It would allow governments to regulate more effectively. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it would change the incentives for all of the economic players. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, in turn, I think, is one of our best shots at actually upgrading the economic system and retain this strength right, of, of decentralized information processing and resource allocation while respecting, in a way, social and environmental boundaries. So it's about creating transparency in order to support the transformation of the economy into a more sustainable one. Is that, is that a good summary of what you would Exactly, you yeah. I mean, I think you can take, you can take an example, right? In 2018, um, you could, for example, compare Pepsi yeah. and Coke yeah. on their um, environmental performance with regards to water. Yeah. And you would find that in that year... Um, Coca-Cola wasted 
five times more water mm -hmm. than Pepsi. Okay. But its revenues were only half of that of Pepsi. Mm. So if you index it per revenue unit, you know. It's 10 times as it's much. It's 10 times as much. And I think if people would know that and they would sit in a restaurant and they would think to themselves, you know what? I think the price is pretty similar, the taste, and I don't want to offend any, uh, <laughs> <laughs> any listeners, <laughs> but the taste is pretty similar. And, you know, but water scarcity is a, actually a huge problem. Yeah. So maybe I should go for a Pepsi. And then I think if enough people do that, you get this dynamic going that a lot of mm. those micro signals start flowing into the direction of Coke. Mm. And they would think to themselves, yeah, we are losing on, on this environmental protection side. Yeah. But I guess in order to, to achieve that, you need to have a, a broad applicability and availability of that data. So, so which um, is probably a little bit contradictory to the you know, current data system where everybody says, you know, data is the new gold and I have to keep it and I have to kind of, you know, you know, you know only sell it at a high price and, and making a ton of money on that. But, you know, the way that you're just, you know, explaining this, you know, that data should be available basically to everybody, ideally at a, you know, a production cost, if you wish. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of free, but uh, production cost would be probably something that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, the first of all, I think this analogy of oil and data, it has this important limitation, right, that if you use oil, it's gone. Mm. If you use data, it's not gone, it's still there, right? Yeah. Probably if you're smart about it, you create additional data that is even more informative. Yeah. Um, so there's no need to keep it in some kind of like database hidden from the eyes of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it should be freely, or it should be as freely available as, as, as possible. Yeah. Um, I think in order to do that, you need on the one hand solutions like Atlas to generate high quality data in the first place. And then you need infrastructures, you know, trusted parties that can um, facilitate the transfer of that high quality data mm. across different parties right mm. um my understanding is that data lines also initiative like that yeah i mean there's there's many around you know like there's obviously you know data land but then there's you know sustainable open data platform there's esg clearinghouse there's something in austria which is done by österreichische Kontrollbank. Um, so there's more and more of these data commons you know popping up and and in the end you know the ultimate data common will be esap you know, the European single access point. Um, not to mention, you know, also the NZDPU, which is an zero data public utility. So there's many, many of those coming together. And and I guess, you know, when when you're right, you, you might be seeing a world where these are interconnected because then it, it doesn't really matter where you get into this, you know, let's say, you know, data sharing economy, if you wish, as long as you have one entry point. And the rest is then, I guess, where we see or where I see personally the the world going is then, on top of which you are in competition. You're like, uh, and you can, if you have the best solution for your fund managers to have a report done with your system, um, as opposed to your competitor, you know, you win on the IP to build, to build a good report or build a good, you know, software solution rather than collecting, you know, one data point and, you know, keeping it and saying, okay, well, this is my barrier of entry, you know, I'll keep it. <laughs> you know, so, so I guess we are pretty much on the same page here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think ultimately there is a foundational data engineering problem going on here. Um, so we have so many different standards that ask you for certain data, yeah. very similar, very similar uh, themes, yeah. right? Um, 
but ever so slightly different ways of, of, of framing the question, which I think rightly drives a couple of companies just mad because they're like, well, why don't you, why can't you just agree on one <laughs> way to phrase that question and gives you a very similar piece of information. And so I think the partially the, the, the common in a way project for all of those data commons, but also for the solution, solution providers is to find this common data ontology, right? That would yeah. allow you yeah. to exchange data in meaningful ways without creating um, a ton of work for the or the un unnecessary work of for, for the for the for the players. Um, I think at Atlas we've now mapped like you know over a dozen of standards, and we have mapped over two thousand six hundred like KPIs that you could ask for potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for any theme, you could probably ask the same question in like forty different ways and still not be done. Yeah, yeah and Harvard did a did a story at then as probably thirty ways of you know saying what a workplace injury is. You know, exactly like the, the the minute changes in the technical definition how to define that. But there's a great work, and I don't know if you're aware of it, and uh, um, is you know the work from the Capitals Coalition, digitizing sustainability data. Mm -hmm. You know, there's XBRL in there and and mm -hmm. others mm -hmm. who kind of you know build the the very in quotation you know very boring stuff what you need in order to kind of you know make data points speak to each other yep. it's not even about the content it's just about you know the data fields and the technical definition that is required to to basically have that link together and they're doing great work there and um, so so probably will take them two or three years to to finalize that work but then you know together with XBRL and ESIF which is the reporting standard for sustainability um, you know, I see great stuff happening mm -hmm. here. Agreed. Awesome. So very bad to agree on something when you kind of end <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> but since we've been we've been speaking a little bit about these topics, I guess um, it's just right, rightfully so that you know we agree on on kind of you know the the point that the raw data points should be floating around almost freely. People should be paid for the work that they bring into this. You know. Um, and uh, and you know meaningful money in in order to kind of you know do that work, but um, you know the the real competition should be done on the application on top of it and not on kind of guarding a single point of information which theoretically you can't even own. You know, like that's also something probably we we can dive into this for one more second. Is you know what I always find fascinating is if you collect the data point, then uh, many data providers say, okay, I own this data point, I sell you data. Mm -hmm. If you build this to an extreme and say, okay, well, how how tall are you? What is your weight? And then I sell this to, you know, some other people and say, okay, well, this is my data that I'm selling to you about Vladimir. Mm -hmm. That is the current world to my mind. Mm -hmm. And and I guess uh, the future must be somewhere where the data source will, will also be remunerated, not only business to business, but also in LinkedIn and Facebook. They make a ton of money. Um, with the people's data, and uh, and they should actually kind of you know spare some some of that money for the people who originate that data. For sure, and I would say the you know incentives matter, and in a world where you are trying to get people to disclose data and be transparent, um, on the one hand you have the stick route. You know you can you can uh, threaten not to buy their products anymore or you know mm. increase the cost of capital or maybe there will be the regulatory fine and i think this is incredibly important without that nothing would move but i think on top of it you could create uh, a carrot and and actually um incentivize people to think about all of those th things right in increasingly sophisticated ways so i think one of the things we haven't quite mentioned but i think it's also very important is that the esg data we collect today is 
conceptually adjacent to a lot of very interesting domains where even the methodologies are not even yeah. well defined yet, right? We have the problem that if you just collect if you just collect ESG data, you essentially answer the question of is a company a responsible corporate citizen? Mm. You know, how they treat their people, how diverse their workforce is, yeah. whether they have like safe and secure supply chains. But by that logic, tobacco companies can have very high ESG scores. True. Right? And um, we need to complement all of these methodologies to really get to those planetary and social boundaries. We need to complement it with an understanding of impact, right? Like what what happens to the world if a service or good is actually consumed? And that should weigh in the way we think about the environmental and social performance of those of those companies. And I think lastly, it's not only important to get data for data's sake, but actually then help manage the the performance of those companies, yeah. right? So this this mixture of how do I measure performance, how do I actually understand my myself in the world mm. when other people are doing actions that in a way influence influence the social and environmental budget that is available for everyone. Yeah. This continuous optimization function uh, is something that we haven't gotten quite down yet, and I think we're still in the in the yeah in in the beginning of this process. And that is probably your next venture after you finished Atlas Metrics. <laughs> um, that could be then kind of you know the extension to to what you're doing. Vladimir, thank you so much. Um, it was a great pleasure having you here, and um, I'm looking forward to many more interactions on on a professional and also on a private basis. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me here. This is the end of today's episode, but stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems. <laughs>